draw your attention back to Ephesians 4 this morning. Ephesians 4 verse 25, we will read through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 4 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. May God bless the reading of His Word. And let's go to Him in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we are mindful this morning that we are able to come to you only by your grace and your mercy. It is only in your grace and your mercy that you sent Christ to live and to die that we might have forgiveness of sins. Oh Lord, help us to live and walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Help us to put off the old man and to put on the new. Lord, bless us here this morning as we turn to your word. Lord, may the Spirit reveal its truths to us this morning. To the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's interesting the way our nature works as members of the the fallen race of Adam. We're so easily able to justify and downplay the things and the areas in our lives that are problems to us. This is often why we talk about things in general terms or in generalities and not in specifics. It makes it easy to gloss over the particulars when we speak in general terms. It's why men like Jonathan Edwards saw such a need to look at the particulars in every area of his life. Was Edwards' case and his desire to review, he had these resolutions that he made, written resolutions to live his life by according to Scripture, and according to godly principles. And it was his desire to review in detail the way that he conducted his life in uh, regard to those resolutions that he made. Uh, And it was by that he was able to look at the smallest of details and discover what it was that might hinder his walk with the Lord. If dealing with generalities, it would be easy to gloss over and find an area within this general sphere where we may not be struggling to live as God intends his people to live and to pass over those areas that we may be struggling with. Take, for instance, love. We can generally talk about loving each other, about loving our families, loving each other in the body of Christ even, We can talk about loving our spouse and our children. And we look at this in a general sense and we say, I'm doing a pretty good job here. Loving the people I go to church with. I'm loving my family. Doing a pretty good job. Everything seems to be okay. And this is where human nature wants us to live. And our enemy, 
would make use of this in his desire to hurt and to harm us in our walk. We look away from the areas we are failing and we go right to the area covered under these general principles where we might be in some small way succeeding. I'll be honest and say that when I come to passages like here that we find in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, uh, we've already read this, so you know where we're, where we're going, but it steps on my toes. It convicts. It hurts when I read some of these passages like this. Because Paul is not dealing with general here. He goes on to deal with what is specific into the details of what God would have us to refrain from and what God would have us to do in our walk as Christians. Going back to the love I just mentioned, my mind when dealing with the general aspect of love will automatically go to that area which I know I am doing. I'm working to provide for my family. And that's a good thing. We're supposed, we're supposed to do that. It's good. It's profitable. But my mind will focus on that and skip right over the areas that I may be struggling with. Am I hold bitter, holding bitterness about things? Did I shy away from being truthful in saying that all, in saying all that needed to be said at the moment it needed to be said? Is that not included under a general sphere of love? Am I provoking my children to anger? It's a difficult one. Maybe even out of right motive. But it turns to sin. Because I do it in a fashion that might not be honoring to God. Am I being impatient with those that I love? All of these things under the umbrella of love, but passed over until I start to deal with the particulars of what love is and how it manifests itself. This is what Paul is doing here this morning dealing with particulars. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Therefore, Paul once again is tying his whole letter together with a series of therefores, wherefores, or fors. We will quickly be reminded this morning that we are reading a letter meant to be circulated to the church at Ephesus and then beyond the church to Ephesus to the surrounding churches and a letter that's been preserved for us and included in what we have as God's word. No chapter or verse markings to divide all these things up. Instead, it is a letter meant to be read and would have been read to the body there in Ephesus as such. So Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the body in his building, once again, we've said this many times and we'll probably say it a few more times as we go through Ephesians. He's building block upon block. As he's building up from the foundation to the upper levels of this structure of what the whole epistle to the Hebrews is about. In the first three chapters dealing with doctrine and on to the application of that doctrine through the last three chapters, not that we don't find doctrine in the last three chapters or find application in the first three but primarily he is built upon a foundation of this doctrine and is now building upon that structure, that which applies and that which works its way out of that doctrine through application and through the lives of those for whom this doctrine is true and has been revealed to and is alive in their hearts. And we find that he starts this section with another therefore in verse 25. I think it is the most acceptable thing to link this therefore back to Ephesians 4 verse 21 where it says assuming 
that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul tells us here in the 25th verse, having put away falsehood in verse 21, he tells us that we have heard about Jesus. We were taught in him as the truth is in him, as the truth, truth is in him. We have put away falsehood. He then says in verse 22, to put off the old self or the old man. The the old garment is that picture that we, we briefly talked about, which in one facet, that old self that we put off, falsehood is a part of that old man. Therefore, having put away falsehood, having stripped that off and put on truth as it is in Jesus Christ, he's saying be clothed in his truth, having put away that which is of the old man, the old self, having put away falsehood and put on the new man, that which is true. All through this passage that we read earlier, 25 through 32, We are not only told what we are not to do, to put away certain things, but also what we are to do. Christianity is not just a list of don'ts. There is also instruction for how we are to live. What it means to live for the glory of God. And to live, as R.C. Sproul would say, Coram Deo before the face of God. So here Paul tells us, having put away falsehood or lying, as some translations put it, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Well, here is truly a radical idea to fallen man, is it not? Speaking truth. Here is something very contrary to the old nature, to those who are remaining or still in the likeness of fallen Adam. We are to speak truth. God hates lies. He hates it. They are an abomination to him. We are to speak truth. Ephesians 4, verse 15, says, Rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then in Ephesians 6, verse 14, we are to be girded with truth. Girded with truth. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We are to put off the old man, Paul is telling us here this morning. We're to put it off. We're to do away with it. Put off the old man and his desire for lies. They are from the enemy himself. If you remember in John 8, 44, when Jesus is speaking to a group, he says that you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Even in the Old Testament, this is abundantly clear clear that God loves truth and he hates falsehood. He hates lies. Deception. In Zechariah 8, verse 16 and 17, the prophet tells us, these are the things that you shall do. This is God's command to his people through the prophet Zechariah. These are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. 
for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. What a radical thing truth is. Truth is God's territory. Jesus is the source of truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So to speak truth with our neighbor, we must be in Christ. We must be. Look at the world around us that's in the grip of our old sinful nature, in the grip of the evil one, in the grip of our enemy. Look at the world around us. Everywhere we turn, we see lives and at best half-truths. Think about what you're told. Turn on the TV and watch some advertisements. Lies after lies after lies. Buy this and you'll be young, right? How many times do we see that pictured in advertisements? Drive this and you'll be popular. Eat this, you'll lose weight. Use this product and you'll be beautiful. Take this and you'll be happy and stress-free. Our whole economy is built up and has its foundation on lies. I tell you, truth is a radical concept. It is not of a fallen world. Speak truth. Put away falsehood. A couple things to mention here before we move on from this verse. I think it is evident that this is all falsehood, not just speaking lies, but even telling half-truths or lying by omission. Bearing false witness, but also not bearing testimony when testimony needs to be brought forth. In other words, there's a time not to remain silent. And if we remain silent during that time, in my opinion, that's the same thing as not telling the truth, not speaking truth. Truth must be spoken in love, but truth must be spoken. We've put away, we've taken off falsehood, Paul says. Let us each one speak to our neighbor and speak truth. The second thing I believe we must mention is that that we must also speak truth to all men. And the case could be made for all men in, in in some contexts to be everyone that we come in contact with. I think that that is a godly principle to always speak truth to everyone. But that's not what it's talking about in the context of our scripture here in Ephesians 4.25. We are to speak truth with our neighbor because we are members one of another. This is in the context of chapter 4 of Ephesians. In the context of Paul talking to us about the body of Christ. The hand must not speak falsehood to the foot. Can you imagine what would happen to unity if this was the case? There would be no unity if members of the body spoke untruths to one another. And the whole context of this part of the letter is regarding the unity of the Spirit, the body of Christ. Well, we'll move on. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here again is something that we are exhorted both to do and not to do, and it is vital to the unity of the body of Christ. Be angry. You will notice that this is not a prohibition for anger. There is such a thing as a righteous and just anger. We're to be Christ-like in all things, and we find that our Savior at various times in His life was moved to anger but it was always a righteous anger with the right occasion and the right aim. It is right to be angry with and regarding those things which are contrary to the glory of God and to what God considers to be holy. We have a couple examples of this in John 2, 13 through 17. 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand, we read, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And then in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Mark 3, 1 through 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. You guys will remember this. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. They watched him to see so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Here we see Christ in both of these passages moved to a righteous, a holy, a just anger. He had right motive. He had right occasion. And he had a right aim for his anger. Anger in and of itself is not definitively to be classified as sinful. I want to quote a few things to you from the great Puritan Matthew Henry. In the first one, he said, If you have a just occasion to be angry at any time, if you have a just occasion to be angry at any time, see that it be without sin. And therefore take heed of excess in your anger. If we would be angry and not sin, says one, we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. What was it that we see anger in Christ regarding? What is it we see anger from God the Father regarding those things which are sinful. And secondly, Matthew Henry said, though anger in itself is not sinful, yet there is the utmost danger of it becoming so if it be not carefully watched and speedily suppressed. And therefore... This is a quote we should all think about. And therefore, though anger may come into the bosom of a wise man, it rests only in the bosom of fools. I'm going to say that again. Though anger may come into the bosom of a wise man, it rests only in the bosom of fools. And this, I believe, is what the last part of this verse, verse 26, is dealing with. The longer even right anger, even just anger, rests in our hearts, the more likely it is to become sinful. To go to the point that it leads to bitterness. And it must be put away. Our verse says, let not the sun go down on your anger. Calvin says this of of this anger. Lastly, our anger after a reasonable time ought to be allowed to subside without mixing itself with the violence of carnal passions. Why? Because the longer the anger goes, the more likely it is to become sinful. Let not the sun go down on your anger. This is why Paul adds in verse 27 of Ephesians 4, and give no opportunity to the devil. When anger, even righteous anger, boils and festers, 
It gives opportunity to the devil, to our enemy, to make use of it, to tempt us and lead us into sin. Is this not what you've seen in your own life? You're moved to anger for right reasons. You might have a righteous or a just anger against sin, hurt, ridiculed unjustly, or maybe even been in view of something that is sinful and contrary to that which God says is holy and good. Move to anger at that which is unjust and unholy. You have a right motive. You have a right occasion for anger. But unlike Christ who has no sin, we have to deal with the remainders of indwelling sin. And because of that and we hold on to this anger, the enemy has used it to spring up a well of bitterness and resentment, leading that anger to turn to sinful thoughts and actions. And even though our motive may have been good, it leads to sin. Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Think what this could do to the unity of the body of Christ. How it can cause division and hurt within the body of Christ. Put this anger away, Paul says. Let not the sun go down on it. Give no opportunity to the devil who would gain a foothold through anger. This is what the enemy does. Remember what Peter told us in 1 Peter 5.8, to be sober, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a luring lion, seeking someone to devour. You think he won't make use of your holding on to anger? I know he has in my life. I know he has. Paul goes on in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone, with anyone in need. We won't spend a whole lot of time on this verse, but briefly touch on a couple things. I think we have a connection here in verse 28 with verse 25, having put away falsehood. And certainly there's direct connection to one of even the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not steal. But Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. What is a thief? Is a thief not one who gains and, and acquires by dishonest means? Wouldn't that best summarize what a thief is? By taking advantage of worldly means which are at odds with that which brings glory to God. So even if it's not the most in sync with what we might look at as being thievery or theft today, if it's robbing God of His glory. Dishonest gain. Theft. It's one who acquires his possessions by dishonest means, by fraud, by coercion, by dishonest schemes, by taking advantage of these worldly means. But Paul says, let, let the one who did that stop doing that. And let him do honest work with his own hands, not by the works of others so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There are some who don't have the ability to work. And a most Christ-like action is to share what is gained by honest work with those who have need. This is not speaking about the one who has the ability to work and refuses. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 said, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Work is a good thing. It's a good thing. If you remember way back in the garden, before the fall, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God put man in the garden to work and to keep it. This was before the fall. Work is a good thing. 
But there are times when one is unable to work, when there are some that are needing. And Paul tells the man of God, that man who may have once been a thief, gathering things by dishonest means, to steal no longer but to do honest work. See, we've put away falsehood. We've put away the lying and those things that go along with falsehood. We do honest work. So that out of the means obtained by that work, he might share with anyone in need. On verse 29, Paul goes on, and he tells us, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And he'll tell us a little bit later in Ephesians 5, verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, here's a do not, but do. Once again, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. In Matthew 15, 18, Jesus said something to the Pharisees and the scribes that I think has some some relevance here. He said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. It's not what I'm taking in that defiles a person. But what comes out of the heart defiles a person. The old man, this, this, this one who is still living under the first Adam, the old man, the one who has not been redeemed, has not been made a new creature, his heart, his wicked heart, spews out corrupt talk, foolishness, filthy talk. But the heart that has been made alive, the one who has a new heart, has a new spring within him. Therefore, Paul says, don't let talk which corrupts, which poisons, come out of your mouth. And don't just not let that come out, but in light of that which we now are, we are to speak, to talk in a manner that is good for building up so that it might be a means of grace to those who hear our speech. I will quote Matthew Henry once again here. He said, The great use of speech is to edify those with whom we converse. Christians should endeavor to promote a useful conversation, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, that it may be good for and acceptable to the hearers in way of information, counsel, pertinent reproof, or the like. That is what our whole speech should be about. Why should our talk be good for building up and be a means of grace to those who hear? Why is it so important that no corrupt talk come from our mouths. Paul gives us another reason outside of the fact that it is good for the hearer and it is a means of grace for the hearer. In verse 30, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption by corrupt talk, by poisonous speech, we might grieve the one who indwells us as Christians. The one who unites us to the body of Christ, who seals us unto the day of redemption when this body will for the first time no longer have any remainders of indwelling sin. This is the one who seals us for that day. This is the one who indwells 
each and every believer. In Ephesians 2, verse 22, In Him, it's in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Later on in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, In Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's paint a picture here or two. Who of us, being reconciled to a mighty king who we were once at enmity with, but who who have been made at peace with this king. And this king has given a resident to us to live in our own home and promise that this one who resides with us is the down payment, the earnest of a promised glory and immeasurable riches. Who of us would grieve that one. Who of us would grieve that one who is sent to reside with us? What person in their right mind would act in a manner or speak in a manner that would bring shame upon the one who was sent to us as the guarantee of our inheritance? Or who of us has not had the opportunity to sit with someone or spend some time with someone who is a great source of knowledge? Who is a great source of comfort? Who has experience that we don't have any inkling about? But things that are of great interest to us. Would anyone in their right mind not be content to sit for hours and to learn and to hear that one speak and to be comforted by that one? Seeking to be led from them and learning from them? Would we not do everything in our power not to grieve them so that they might stay with us and comfort us? and instill wisdom into us? This is the case with the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every believer, who is the guarantee of the very inheritance promised by God to us that the Apostle Paul goes into great detail about in the first few chapters of Ephesians. He's the down payment of each and every coming promise from God the Father. The promise of eternal life, the promise of glorification, the promise of of the, the joy and felicity of being in His presence. All these things we have a taste of now, but the Holy Spirit has been given to us as the down payment, the, the guarantee, the one who guarantees the actual culmination, the actual giving of that inheritance in all its wonder, in all its completed fulfillment. This is what the Holy Spirit is to us. Grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't come to a place Paul says, where the Holy Spirit is grieved and His presence is not felt 
in your inmost being. This is what David feared the most. In Psalm 51, after Nathan came to him and, and revealed to him this story about this, this man who, who stole, stole, let the thief no longer steal, who stole a lamb from this man who had nothing. And David said that this man is worthy of death. And Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. You are the one who did this. You killed Uriah the Hittite to steal from him, to take from him his wife as your own. And David, overcome with guilt and mourning, in repentance for his sin, says in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. He had grieved the Holy Spirit did not feel His presence, this presence of the Holy Spirit due to His sin. Oh, grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, Paul goes on to tell us, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put all these things away from you, child of God. Bitterness, wrath, anger, those things which are outward expressions of our hatred for others. Selfish hatred for others. It's that which festers inside and boils over from our thoughts to our actions into clamor and slander and malice which delights in causing harm or enjoyment in seeing harm done to those who we hold in bitter contempt. Paul says to put these things away. Take them off. Cast them away. Going back to Ephesians 4, 21 through 22, where we, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Cast those things away. Get them away from you. Lock them away somewhere where they might never rear their ugly head again. They belong to your former manner of life. And they're corrupt through deceitful desires. Have nothing to do with these things, Paul says. They belong to what you, which you once were. They belong to those made in the likeness of the first Adam. But you are a new creation. You are a new creature. These old things are to be done away with. You are now made after the likeness of the second Adam. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. So if we're to take those things off, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, to put them away along with malice, what are we to put on instead? Well, Paul answers the question for us in verse 32. Be kind one to another. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Put on Kindness, be tender-hearted to your neighbor, for we are members of one another. These things in verse 31 and 32 are completely contrary to each other. They're at odds with one another. Put away hatred, put on kindness. Put off wrath, put on a tender heart. Throw away malice and adorn yourself with forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, this is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ on display for us right here. The knowledge of our own forgiveness 
should lead us to forgiving one another. I don't want us to be narrow-minded or naive here. We will anger others in the household of faith. And we will be angered by those in the household of faith. Not even to mention the fact of these things happening with those outside the body of Christ. These things will happen again and again as long as we are on this side of that which the Holy Spirit has sealed us for. That coming day of redemption. And as long as we have the remainders of indwelling sin, we are going to err. We are going to hurt. We are going to to cause friction. We're going to cause pain to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we may even cause them to have just and righteous anger with us. But Paul is telling us not to let that turn into sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it to turn, turn to sin. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice, he tells us. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me ask you, what has God forgiven you of in Jesus Christ? We were just like all the rest, weren't we? He's already built the foundation for this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like all the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.12 Remember, that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Why? Because we lived in sin. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility. You and I were in sin, separated from God, unable to come near him. But Christ came and Christ lived a holy life. He died as a substitute for my sin and for your sin, the just for the unjust that we might be forgiven. He was raised the firstborn among many brethren, raised for our justification, that we might be certain that He satisfied the wrath of God against our sins. That we who are far off might be brought near in the robe of His righteousness, forgiven of all that we have done. You remember what we read earlier about removing the sins as far as the east is from the west? The Scripture tells us it's behind us. Where's behind God's back? But that's where our sins are. He's, He's everywhere. They're gone. They're forgiven. They were on Christ Placed on him, he bore God's wrath for our sins. 
we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repays us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father knows, shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then Paul in Romans 4 quotes Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Have you been blessed with forgiveness of sins committed against a holy, righteous, just God? You and I, have sinned against not just the one who holds the highest authority, but we have sinned against the one who holds all authority. That's who we've sinned against, but we've been forgiven. Paul says in light of that, let your manner of life be characterized by forgiveness. You were unworthy of kindness, rebelling against God, yet He showed you kindness and tenderness beyond all comprehension. Now be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. There are some of you here I know who have had great wrongs done to you. Yet you've forgiven and even prayed for those who wronged you. Sometimes even entering into fellowship with those who have wronged you because you know the forgiveness of the Father. It's a powerful thing that is otherworldly. This is really the summation of this whole passage we've been looking at. It should cause us to fall on our knees in thankfulness when we've been graced to be able to speak truth in love, to be angry without sin, to labor to help others, to speak in a manner that builds up, to throw off those characteristics Paul speaks of in verse 31. And when we're able to be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and it should cause us to fall on our knees in repentance when we failed and followed after the flesh instead of being led by the Spirit. I have a friend who's getting ready to go to Gettysburg, getting ready to visit Gettysburg. And I'm reminded of what happened during one of the battles in a place called the Wheat Field on July 2nd. Forget how many years ago it's been now. It's been a long time. I don't remember if this was 61, 62. I, don't, I can't remember when Gettysburg was. but uh, Thousands of soldiers engaged in a battle here in a place called the Wheat Field. Uh, after fighting, there were approximately 4,000 dead and dying laying in this wheat field. Uh, so many that it was recorded that you could walk the vast expanse of this field without ever touching the ground. So many bodies were there. And the farms surrounding that field had their fences destroyed. And the animals were wandering about among the dead and the dying. The pigs rooting uh, in and around the bodies. And one soldier by the last name of Inman recorded that he fought them off with his sword for two nights as he lay there waiting to be removed from the battlefield. George Hilliard, a Confederate soldier, also was there and recorded that during the night when firing had ceased, one of the soldiers began to sing. This is on a battlefield. But he lifted up his voice, not in anger or wrath, not in clamor or in slander, For those that I'm sure were enemies of his even, 
sitting around him, dying around him, laying around him. But he lifted up his voice in kindness, in tenderheartedness, such as was good for building up as fits the occasion, that it might, be, it might give grace to those who heard it. And he's saying, Come ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Joy of the comfortless, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, Fadeless and pure, here speaks the Comforter, tenderly saying, Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Here see the bread of life. See waters flowing forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love. Come ever knowing. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Remove. But earth has no sorrow, but heaven can remove. This man could have been overcome by the sinful flesh in anger to those who injured him, in anger to those that he was fighting, even in anger to God for allowing such a thing to happen. But I think he knew something about what Paul was saying here in Ephesians. The forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. This is the power of God to us by the Spirit of God that we might forgive others who have wronged us, who have hurt us, who have angered us. This is the power of God that would allow a Stephen to welcome in a Saul of Tarsus into glory to worship before the presence of God with the man who held the coats of those who stoned him and he consented to his death. But Stephen knew about forgiveness and I'm sure he embraced this apostle who wrote this epistle as soon as he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. This forgiveness is a powerful thing and it ought to rule and overrule everything that we are and everything that we do. May God give us grace to live this way. And if you are overcome with bitterness, hatred, anger, there is only one solution for it, and that is the forgiveness of God in and through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Not saying you'll always be free of feeling those things, but there is forgiveness, and there is a way to forgive through the forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the forgiveness of sin. We thank You for the work of Christ in purchasing that forgiveness for us. We're thankful that we can come into Your presence We can worship, we can have joy, we can have peace in spite of our sin because Christ paid the debt, sacrificed Himself and became the propitiation for our sins. We are thankful for it and we pray, Lord, that You would just grant the Holy Spirit to empower us to live with that at the forefront of who we are and what we do. Lord, that we would meditate on this ceaselessly. Lord, that it would affect every way and every part of our being. 
Thank you for your word that reveals these things to us. Lord, do help us to meditate on it throughout this week until we return again. We thank you and praise you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.